Today's scripture comes to us from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Uh, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. I want to welcome those of you who are visiting us for maybe the first or second time. And we want to say welcome for joining us today. Hey, would you mind uh, spending some time in prayer with me so we can ask the Lord to bless his word? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we sit at your feet, that you would speak to us. Lord, we know that ultimately you are the source of life. And it's through your words that you create life, you sustain life, and you flourish life. And it's through the specific preaching of the word of God that you convey your gracious life upon us, that you give us vitality, you give us hope, and Lord, we need it desperately, for as we have lived in the world these past six days, we have been reminded of the devastating, uh, painful curse of sin, and how has it affected our relationships, our work, our own lives, oh God, we pray now that you would bring us the healing balm of your word, and that it would strengthen and sustain us so that once again we would be refreshed and enabled to go back out into the world by the power of your spirit through the preaching of the word so that yet again we can be a source of blessing and push back the curse of sin and thereby pointing to the one who is the hope of the world, Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, it goes without saying that human behavior can sometimes be very, very annoying, right? Human behavior, at least some of it, can be absolutely annoying. And one particular human behavior that I find excruciatingly annoying is complaining. I really cannot stand the fact that I'm surrounded by people who are always complaining. Of course, it kind of sucks to be me right now because I am a father of four young children where it seems that they're very fluent in the language of complaining all the time. Is it always complaining, right? And I just can't, it just, it's like chalkboard, you know, with nails screeching down on it. Now, please, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that complaining in and of itself is inherently wrong or sinful. Sometimes in life it is necessary to complain. Sometimes it is right to complain so that you can change the situation. But there is a species of complaining that I find incredibly sinful and incredibly horrid. And that's the complaining where people are just upset about a situation that they could change, that they could get out of, that they don't have to be in. And yet, instead of getting out of that situation and hence to stop complaining, they, for some odd reason, choose not to be out of that situation. And hence, they keep complaining more and more. Let me give you a couple of examples. You know, sometimes I'm surrounded by people who are always complaining about how out of shape they are and how overweight. And all the time I keep hearing, oh, man, you know, these jeans, I used to fit into them two months ago. And now it's like, oh, my, my belly's always sticking out. My belt buckle's irritating. My belly button is like, oh, why am I so fat? And like, oh, I wish I wasn't so fat. 
course, they do nothing to change the situation. They don't sign up on a gym. If they do sign up for a gym, they never go to the gym. They never go on a diet. They don't even cut a portion of their meal just so they could change the situation. Instead, they'd rather just complain. Then, of course, I'm surrounded by a lot of young single men these days in my line of work. And all the things that I hear from them constantly goes like this. Oh, Pastor John, why am I still single? You know, it just seems like the universe is against me to where all the eligible women want nothing to do with me. All my friends are in relationships, they're engaged, they're getting married. Why me? And they're always on this diatribe about how they cannot be in a relationship. But then a situation arises where there is a perfectly normal lady who loves the Lord, who is ready and waiting to be asked out on a date. Like, hey, what about her? And they go, nah not my type, right? And they just keep on complaining. And then some young professionals in our congregation, sometimes I overhear and they're like, oh, I'm so fed up at work. You know, I'm never getting the promotions. I'm never getting the raises. I'm never getting the titles that I feel entitled to have. They're always complaining about how things at work are not going for them. Meanwhile, it seems to be going for everyone else, right? But then when the opportunity arises where they could take on an extra project, where they could help a coworker, or maybe put in some extra hours where they can show management that they warrant the raise, the promotion, the titles that they want, they go, nah, I'm going to go home and watch Game of Thrones instead, right? And so they just complain and complain and complain. You know, in the days of the medieval church, there was a word to describe this kind of behavior. You know what that word was? Sloth. Sloth. It was one of the seven deadly sins, and given that we are a community made up of Christians, and given furthermore that we, therefore as Christians, are called to say no to sin and not give in to sin, you would think that we would be a group of people who would be the last people on the earth who would give in to this kind of behavior, that we wouldn't be slothful, just complaining about situations that we don't have to be in. But alas, that is not the case. Because Christians are notorious complaining about a situation that they don't have to be in and hence stop complaining, but instead they just choose to stay in it and therefore keep complaining. And I'm thinking of a specific issue that I hear constantly all the time, and that is the complaint of not feeling like they belong, right? I've been pastor here for, you know, almost nine years now. Wow, that's one year short of a decade. And I've been exposed to a wide variety of Christians who come through these doors. And one of the recurring complaints that I keep hearing from people who are bold enough to say it to my face, is like, oh, pastor, I don't feel like I belong here at NCF. I don't feel like this is my church. I don't feel like I'm welcome here. I don't feel like this is a community for me, right? And now, if you could tell from the tone of my voice, I sound annoyed to you. And what? You're very perceptive. Yes, I do get annoyed every time I hear people saying things like that. Because as far as I'm concerned, the basis of that complaint that people always say, like, oh, I don't belong here. This is not my church. This is not the community where I fit in. I think it's an unfounded one. Because one of the things that the Bible clearly teaches is that if you have personal faith in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian then by virtue of that reality, you are a member of the church. You do belong in the church. Not you could, not you can, but you do. And if this is the only church that you've been attending for at least six months to a year, I'm sorry to say it, you belong here. This is your church. This is your community, okay? You see, Christian, the reason why you belong here really has nothing to do with what you did to try and to belong here and it's really nothing what we've done to make you feel like you belong here no the reason why you belong here is because of what Jesus has done it's because Jesus shed his blood for you that made you part of the family the church which is what we are by the way okay 
Because of the shedding of Christ's blood, by virtue of that, you are a member of this body. Just like your mom at one point shed blood for you to bring you into this world, by virtue of that act, you are her family. So also by virtue of Christ shedding his blood for you, you are a member of the body. And if this has been your body for the past six to 12 months, this is your body. You belong here. Now, with that said, however, it is true that just because you belong in a family doesn't always mean you're going to feel like you're a family, right? Just because you're related to somebody doesn't mean you're going to feel like you have a relationship to them even though you have a relationship to them, right? Families need to be intentional with one another so that they can feel what they already are. And that same principle applies when it comes to the church. And as we take a look at our passage for today, we're going to see what we as a church family need to do intentionally so that we can feel what we already are. We belong together. We are family. We are a community. But what can we do intentionally to make sure that that feels genuine? All right? And our passage is going to tell us one thing. We need to make sure that we stick to the routines of God's family. So to further explicate what I mean by that, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon. Excuse me. Number one, the routine of God's family. Number two, why we neglect the routine of God's family. And finally, how to begin the routine of God's family. The routine of God's family, why we neglect it, and how to begin it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the routine of God's family. You know, one of the recurring messages that we hear from child development experts is that in order for a family to flourish, that family needs to have consistent routines, okay? Consistent experiences that are routine. Consider this quote from the healthychildren.org website, which is created by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Listen to what it says about the importance of routines. Quote, every family needs routines. They help to organize life and keep it from becoming too chaotic. Children do best when routines are regular, predictable, and consistent. It turns out having consistent routines is the pathway for a family to thrive and to flourish and for it to feel what it already is, to feel like a family. And this is no different true. This is no more true when it comes to the family of the church. Can we have our passage up there for just a moment? Take a look at what it says in verse 42, specifically the word right in the middle of verse 42. It's the word fellowship. The word fellowship. Now I know for those of you who grew up going to church, you hear that word all the time. And in fact, you use that word all the time, right? Hey, what are you doing after church today? Oh, you know, me and Bill, we're going to go to Flushing. We're going to go get some dim sum. We're going to have some fellowship, right? It's like, hey, what did you do last Friday? Well, you know, me and Mark and me and Jill, we, we hung out at her house and we had some awesome, sweet fellowship, man, right? We use that word all the time. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. Let's have some fellowship. What does it even mean? What does it mean to have fellowship? Well, simply put, To have fellowship simply means to belong, right? When you are having fellowship with someone, you are conveying to them in that fellowshipping that, hey, I belong to you, you belong to me, we belong together because what? We are family, okay? And here in our passage, it tells us there are four things, okay, we need to do, specifically four categories of experiences we need to routinely experience as a church family in order for us to feel like what we already are. And those four things are as follows. Number one, we need to be enjoying a transcendent experience together. Number two, we need to be meeting a dire need together. Number three, we need to be committed to a person's development together. And finally, number four, we need to be sharing intimate vulnerabilities together. Okay? 
those are the four experiences that we need to routinely have as a church family in order for us to feel what Jesus has accomplished for us, making us family. Let's quickly go through it. Number one, we need to first enjoy a transcendent experience together. Read again what it says in verse 43. It says this, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, what's being described here? I'll tell you what's being described. The early church during this time is experiencing awe. They're experiencing something amazing, something beyond their own individual capabilities of manufacturing, right? They're coming together, and they're experiencing something so powerful, so amazing, that by experiencing this thing together, this transcendent experience that's making them filled with wonder and awe, it's bringing them together. It's creating a connection between them that they didn't have before. And if you think about it, stuff like this happens all the time outside of the church, right? Let's say, for illustration purposes, let's say, for some odd reason, that you are a Yankees fan. Okay, let, I know it sounds atrocious to, to even imagine, but let's just say for the argument's sake that you are a Yankees fan, right? And you're at Yankee Stadium because the Yankees are in the World Series, okay? And as you're in Yankee Stadium, you're watching the game, You sit next to a complete stranger. You have no idea who they are, never met them before. They're a complete stranger to you. But by the way they're dressed and by the way they're cheering on the game, you know they're a fellow Yankee fan. And let's say it's one of those those, those titillating games where it just looks like the Yankees are going to lose, but then at the eighth inning, they just make it and they, like, win the game, right? And the whole stadium is going crazy. And in that moment, you're just so filled with such awe at the moment of the game that you scream, The person next to you who's a stranger screams, and you look at him, he looks at you, you come and you give him a bear hug, and what does he do in return? He gives you a bear hug back, right? Imagine you saw this same stranger, right, but just out on the street, and you just walked up to him and gave him a bear hug. You think he's going to return that bear hug like he did in Yankee Stadium? No, he's probably going to punch you in the face or call the cops on you, right? What's the difference? The difference is you shared a transcendental experience. You shared something that made you feel with such awe. You enjoyed a transcendent experience together that made you feel so connected to where it justified and warranted a sense of intimacy with this person who was a complete stranger, right? See, that's what happens when you enjoy a transcendent experience with someone, even someone who you've never met before. This common experience that made you feel with such awe can connect you to someone as if they are allies, right? That's what happens. So that's the first thing we need. If we want to have a sense of connection with each other, we need to enjoy a common transcendent experience together. The second thing that we need to experience is meeting a dire need together. Read again the first half of verse 46 where it says this, and day by day they were attending the temple together. It says here that the early Christians, one of the things that they did is that they went to the Jewish temple every day. Now why in the world did they go to the Jewish temple every day? Well, New Testament scholars tell us that they were doing this because they were evangelizing. They were going out every day telling other Jews about the Jewish Messiah. Because remember, the early church, they were all what? They were already Jewish, right? The first generation of Christians were Jewish Christians. They were the first converts. All the apostles were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish, if you didn't know, right? 
And every day they went out and told their fellow Jews about the Jewish Messiah. He's come. He's satisfied the Old Testament prophecies. He's here. And they went to the temple every day because the Jewish temple had two prayer services every day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon around 3 p.m. And they would go out and tell their fellow Jews about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. Why do they do it every day? Because for them, as it should be for us, telling people about Jesus who don't know Jesus, in their minds is the most important priority. Why? Because, Christian, they know and we should know that the most dire need a human being has is to be saved from their sin. The most dire need a human being has is to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? That's how they did. And so they went together in groups, and they basically did group evangelism, or what we sometimes call oikos evangelism, where they're reaching out and telling their fellow Jews, mainly people they already knew, neighbors, coworkers, family members, who would go to these prayer meetings and say, I want to tell you about Jesus, right? And because they were on this mission to save people, to tell people about the greatest need against the greatest threat, right? They felt a sense of bond. And if you think about it, that also is true in other settings as well. Have you guys ever heard a term, blood brothers? You know what blood brothers are? They're people who fight in a war together, right? You saw blood brothers in World War II and Vietnam. You see that terminology over and over. And it's basically where you have a group of guys who don't know each other, but they go into war so they can save a nation, so they can save people, right, against a political tyrant, And through this suffering of being on a mission to save, it brings them together to the point where they're not mere friends, they're not acquaintances, they're brothers. They're blood brothers because by the shedding of blood together, that created a bond. I mean, think about the first Avengers movie. You guys remember the first Avengers movie? You remember how when Captain America and Thor and the Hulk and these guys first came together, were they they friends? No, they were like trying to kill each other. They didn't like... They didn't like each other at all, but once they had this common mission of saving the world, right, of protecting the world against this greatest threat, meeting a real dire need, what happens at the end of the movie? They're eating shawarmas together in some restaurant in New York City, right? They're fellowshipping because now they're not just these isolated individuals. They're the Avengers. They're family, right, because this mission has caused a bond to be created, okay? So... That's the second thing we need. We need to have this sense of commitment to this mission of saving and meeting a dire need. The third thing that we need in order to have a sense of bonding and and, and connection with each other is a commitment to personal development of others. Read again the second half of verse 46. Can we have it up there, please? It says, And the breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice also what these early Christians did. What did they do? They ate a lot, right? And when people gave them food, they generously received it, right? One of the most common characteristics of the early church is they were always eating together. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, Pastor John, we got this down as a church, man. We always get together. We're always eating together. We're always going to Flushing. We're always in someone's house. We're always having barbecues. We're always hanging out in restaurants. We're always eating. We got this down. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Because what this verse is saying is so much more than they just got together to eat, right? In the ancient world, eating wasn't just for eating. Eating wasn't just so that they can enjoy the food. In the ancient world, to eat together symbolized something deeper, okay? 
And that is what is being conveyed here. There's a symbolic message embedded in this idea of eating together. And what is that? Let me give you a personal illustration. You know, one of the most stressful things that I have to deal with as a dad is the fickle appetites of my kids, specifically my son Judah. My son Judah is such a picky eater. I mean, it doesn't matter what my wife, like, works so hard to prepare for him, right? His typical attitude towards food is he doesn't want to eat it, right? He takes a couple bites, right? And he's like, Daddy, my stomach hurts. Like, after the fifth, I counted it. After the fifth bite, he goes, Daddy, my stomach hurts, right? And I get so frustrated to the point where I confront him. At the dinner table, I'm like, boy, I, just, I don't even call him Judah. I said, boy, you better eat that food, right? Why? Why am I so frustrated? Because as his father, I am committed to him flourishing in every area of life, even his physical flourishing, right? That's the whole idea here why they're always giving food because it's a symbolic gesture to communicate that I am committed to your development. I am committed to you to flourish, even if it means sometimes I have to get in your face or I have to confront you because you are potentially sabotaging your own life. You know, one of the best ways that you can tell someone that they belong in your life is when you care enough about them that you're willing to get in their face to confront them when they're acting so foolishly that they're harming themselves. But conversely, that also means one of the best ways you can show you care about them is when you celebrate and you also enable them to succeed, to mature, to develop, and to be the best possible person that God has called them to be. There is something about being committed to someone's flourishing, being committed to someone's success, that it creates a sense of bond, it creates a a sense of fellowship that would not be there in any other way, okay? So that's the third thing we need. He has to have personal commitment to someone's personal development. And then we come to the final experience that we must routinely have in order to have a sense of belonging, and that is found at the end of verse 42 with the phrase, the prayers, The prayers. One of the things that the early church always did is that they were offering the prayers, okay? But the context makes it clear, guys, that these prayers are not the quiet, silent prayers that you keep to yourself in some isolated corner in the sanctuary. These are what? Intercessory prayers. These are prayers that come out of a situation where people are revealing and divulging their most darkest their most sinister struggles and vulnerabilities to one another so they can ask for prayer. You know, back in the days of the early church, there was no such thing as support groups. There was no such thing as Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, right? Narcotics Anonymous. It didn't even exist. The only thing that existed in the days of the early church that was comparable to that were the prayer groups in the household church where Christians, about two to four of them, would come together and they would confess their deepest sins. They would, they would articulate their most embarrassing vulnerabilities, and they would share these things in the hopes that the person could pray for them and pray together, right, and intercede for one another so that in the ministry of intercession, they can overcome their addictions. They could overcome their fears and their anxieties and their sense of shame. There is something about divulging and sharing your deepest, darkest vulnerabilities to where you no longer have to carry about it by yourself, feeling so isolated and alone that it just creates a bond with the person that you are sharing this information with. I mean, this is why those who get counseling, right, for long periods of time, right, with the same counselor for long periods of time, they start getting attached, The official term is they get attachment issues with their counselor, right? 
And all the textbooks say that counselors should avoid that at all costs or you should find a new patient at all costs because it's unavoidable, right? When you share your darkest secrets with someone, it first requires a bond of trust, right? And what's a bond of trust? It's a bond. (laughs) It's a bond where you're connected to someone. It is unavoidable. When you start sharing your deepest, darkest secrets with someone, right, it'll create a bond. And it gets even stronger when they start reciprocating and sharing their deepest, darkest secrets for you, and you add prayer to that, man, it creates a bond of connection that is almost impenetrable, okay? So there you have it, the four experiences that we need to routinely have as a church family in order to feel like the family that we are in Jesus Christ. And they are, again, you need to enjoy a transcendent experience together. You need to meet a dire need together. You need to be committed to a person's development together. And you need to share intimate vulnerabilities together. Now, it's at this point, many of you, maybe all of you are hearing this. You're like, ah, Pastor John, (laughs) I have not really experienced these routines much. Maybe none. In fact, I would even go so far as that most churches in America have not experienced these routines much, if at all. And the question is, why? Because if it is true that the most frequent complaint that people get in the church is, I don't feel like I'm in community and I want community, but I don't feel like I'm... If that's the case, why are we not experiencing these routines routinely? Why? The answer leads me to my next point, why we neglect the routine of God's family. Skip down to our passage, and let's single in on, zero in, excuse me, on verses 44 and 45. Listen again to what it says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I giggled a little bit as I was reading it because these verses are very dangerous for young people like college, post-college, people who are very idealistic. Because typically when college students read this and they, like, impose their idealistic, naive way of thinking about life, it's like, oh, my goodness, the church practiced communism, right? And they start living this, like, if we want to change the world, we want to radical, let's just sell everything. And let's not own anything, you know, private ownership, bad, communism, good, Marxism, good, you know? And it's like, oh, the Bible promotes it, Right? And so it is easy to interpret it that way, that when you read verses 44 to 45, it looks like the church practiced some primitive form of communism, like they were some cult-like commune. But that's actually not what's happening. And the reason why we know this is because of what it says in verse 46, that there were people meeting together in their private homes. There were a lot of people in the early church who still had private home ownership. And that can't be the case if they really lived this primitive communistic lifestyle, which they did it. And so the question is, what exactly are verses 44 and 45 actually saying? Well, it's simple. These verses are trying to convey the kind of mindset a Christian should have of themselves that's reflected in their attitude towards their possessions. Again, verses 44 and 45 are describing the mindset Christians should have of themselves as it's portrayed in their attitude towards their possessions. And to further explain what I mean, let me read to you this quote from Pastor James Boyce as he reflects on these verses. He writes this, quote, the world says what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine if I can get it. The Christian says, I have nothing but what I first received from God and therefore I'm only a steward of my possessions. What's mine is yours if you have need of it. Now notice how Dr. Boyce describes the mindset a Christian should have. What's the mindset we should have of ourselves? We should think of ourselves as what? A steward, 
Now, what is a steward? Well, simply put, a steward is someone who recognizes that they are not the master, that they're not the one in charge, that they are not superior. If you look up in a thesaurus, you guys know what a thesaurus is, right? It breaks down the etymology of a word, right? And you look up the antonyms of steward, which is the opposite word that means the opposite thing of the word that you're looking up. If you look up antonyms of steward, you get words like king, chief, master, basically someone who is superior to those around them, right? And in fact, Dr. Boyce in that quote starts off with the mindset of the opposite of a steward, right? The world says what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine, right? That's the opposite mindset of the steward. That's the mindset we shouldn't have, okay? You see, a steward has a mindset that says, I'm no better than anyone, and therefore I'm not entitled to anything, even the things that I possess, to where if you need what I have, I'll give it to you. But the opposite of a steward is the mindset, I am so much better than you, I am so superior to you, I'm entitled to everything, even the things that you have. I'm more entitled to the things that you have than you are, right? That's the mindset that is opposite of a steward, and that right there is the reason why so many churches and hence why so many Christians are not living in the context where they feel like what they are, why they are not living in a sense of community where they feel like they're connected and they're in community with one another. Because instead of having the mindset of a steward as we should have, we have the opposite mindset. We have a superiority complex. And because we have a superiority complex, we neglect And therefore not participate in these routines, these experiences that we need to routinely have in order to bond together as a church family. In his book, um, Becoming a Healthy Church, theologian by the name of Steve Machia, he writes in his book this quote, which articulates the condition of the church in America. Listen to what he says. In the church today, we live in a narcissistic age, a period of history marked by self-centeredness and relational challenges. The world around us promotes values that pull us further into ourselves and further apart from one another. The narcissistic personality traits are evident in many who sit in our congregations. Wow. What's Dr. Machia saying? He's saying that the church... The reason why people don't feel like they belong, the reason why the people in the church don't feel connected to one another is because they have adopted what he calls the narcissistic personality that's so prevalent in our culture today. Now, for those of you who've never studied psychology and you have no idea what this narcissistic personality is, you're thinking, what is that? What is this narcissistic personality that we're all struggling with? Well, let me read to you a description from a Princeton professor of psychology by the name of Donald Capps. And as I read to you this description, listen carefully and see if maybe what he is describing could apply to you. Listen to what he says. Quote, a narcissistic personality can be described as having an exaggerated or grandiose sense of self-importance, as having a remarkable absence of interest in and empathy for other persons, as eager to obtain admiration and approval of others, as entertaining fantasies of unrealistic goals, as lacking emotional depth and unwilling or unable to understand the complex emotions of other people, as angry and resentful but often concealing such resentment beneath depressive moods, 
as deficient of genuine feelings of sadness and compassion, as cold and indifferent, icy and unresponsive, as manipulative, exploitive and unprincipled, as having strong feelings of insecurity and inferiority alternating but in no predictable pattern, with feelings of greatness and omnipotent fantasies, and as lacking enthusiasm and joy in the pursuit of goals, but reflecting instead a driven, pleasureless approach to goals which are fueled by an insatiable ambition. Interpersonal relationships are extremely unstable due to a tendency either to over-idealize or to devalue a relationship on an alternating basis. The other is expected to respond to one's desires and wants, but has no right to expect similar treatment in return. Huh. You guys uncomfortable? You guys uncomfortable? Kind of like when you take a look at a selfie picture you just took and you don't like what you see? Kind of uncomfortable, right? I know I did. You see, it's because of this pervasive narcissistic personality that we all struggle with that causes us to neglect the routines that we need to constantly engage in so that we can be intentional in building a sense of belonging that is there if we would only tap into it. I mean, think about it for just a moment. If you think that you have an exaggerated or grandiose sense of self-importance, you're not going to experience or enjoy a transcendent experience with other people, right? People who are narcissistic don't go to sporting events and sit with the regular people in the stands. You know what they do? They get their little private box seats that's hermetically sealed off from everyone else so they can just enjoy the experience on their own. Or if they go to a rock concert, right, they don't sit with the rest of the audience, right, and contribute to this overarching experience of all. No, what do they do? They go to the back, right, the private guest pass, VIP section in a quiet room and watch the performance on a screen. Why do they do that? Because for them, enjoying a transcendent experience is not for the purpose of connecting with other people, which is what you should do. Instead, they see this enjoyment of this transcendent experience as a projection of how they view themselves, right? Of course I should have private box seats in my theater or in the stadium, right? Because this performance, this experience that's so transcendent, I'm the only valid audience member. It's all about me because I'm the transcendent one. Yes, this amazing experience is all centered on me. I am the main target. I am the one who is the reason why this experience is even happening, right? It's all me, 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 right? Or if you have a remarkable absence of interest in or empathy of other people, you're certainly not going to be interested in the dire needs of others, right? People with narcissistic personalities would be like, well, you know what? Yes, I know there are kids starving in Africa where all they need is just simple clean water, right? Antibiotics, simple things that could change the world, right? And I know there are people being sold into sex trafficking. and I know there are needs, but you know what the greatest need is? My greatest need right now is to show everyone how important I am. And I'm so frustrated that people don't see it. I'm so frustrated that people don't get it, that they don't make much of me the way I make much of myself. When you're so consumed in that way of thinking, other people's needs don't register in your mind as important or greater than your need to project yourself and to say, hey, look at how awesome I am, guys. Why don't you recognize it? What's wrong with you? What is in your head that you don't see what is so clear to me? Or if you have constant fantasies of you accomplishing unrealistic goals, 
right? You're not going to be interested in helping other people reach goals that they could realistically reach. If you would just support them, if you would just encourage them, if you would just give them some support and help to help them reach it. No, you're too busy thinking about these scenarios in your head about yourself that you will never be able to achieve, right? I mean, have you ever done this? You're stuck in traffic or you're on the train going to work and you're just like bored out of your mind and you start fantasizing about yourself in a scenario that will never happen in real life, right? You know, sometimes you, you see a K-drama on TV, and you think, oh, man, if only I could be in this situation that the main character and the story in the story, it's not going to happen, right? Or for you guys, you know, one of the common unrealistic fantasies they have is like, oh, man, if I can make this amount of money and live in this neighborhood or if I could just, you know, master Thai boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu that I can beat up this guy. And it's just like such an unrealistic way of thinking sometimes. If you're guilty of that, Chances are you're struggling with a narcissistic personality. You're just so deluded in thinking about yourself in scenarios that will never happen in real life. Meanwhile, you're wasting all that time and energy on fantasizing about yourself that you could do in productively helping someone else reach goals that they could realistically reach if you're just willing to invest in them, to pour into them, and to help them out. And finally, if you're unwilling or unable to understand the complex emotions of other people to where you're cold and indifferent... When someone comes to you, when you're like that, and they're sharing with you their burdens, their vulnerabilities, their secrets, you're not going to have any unction in you to try and support them, to pray for them. You're going to be like, what the heck's wrong with you? (laughs) You're such a loser. You're so pathetic. You know, you have these issues. Why are you coming to me with that, right? Deal with your issues, man, and don't bother me with them. It's so consumed in the way that you look at other people because you see them as a nuisance, not as opportunities in which you can help them and support them, whether by just having a listening ear, by being available to them, by providing counsel, or simply just praying for them. If you want to know why many of you don't feel connected and why you don't have a sense of belonging, even though Christ has ensured that you already belong, is because you're not participating faithfully in the routines God has called you to participate as a member of his family. And the reason why you're not doing that is because you're too fixated on the person that you stare at in the mirror. Or maybe a more accurate way of putting it, it's because you keep looking at yourself metaphorically, like narcissists did in the story. You're so consumed with yourself that you don't think or care about the people around you to where you prioritize and hence participate in the routines that would make you feel like you truly belong. All you do is just complain, I don't belong, I don't belong, I don't belong. And so here's the question. If the biggest hindrance, not the only, but if the biggest hindrance of why we fail to feel connected, right, even though we already are, it's because of us, how do we overcome that? What can we do about it? And this leads me to my final point, how to begin the routine of God's family. Let's go back to verse 44 and 45, but this time let's pay special attention to how verse 44 begins. Listen to what he says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Interesting. Here these verses tell us that the way that we can avoid the narcissistic personality that destroys community and instead have a mindset of a steward, is if we believe something, OK? 
okay? It says in verse 4, because they believe that resulted in them being in community with one another. Here's the question. What did they believe in? Well, verse 42 tells us exactly what they believed in. They believed in what? The apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Now, what in the world is the apostles' teaching? Well, pay attention. It says the apostles' teaching. Not teachings, plural, but teaching. If you ever read through the New Testament, you know that the apostles taught many things. Doctrines to believe, commands to obey, promises to proclaim. But out of all those various teachings, they all subsumed under one main teaching. One main idea, one main apostle teaching. And Paul, the apostle, tells us in Acts 20 what that teaching is when he says this in Acts 20. You know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that come to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message, one teaching for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. The main teaching of the apostles were all the commands that we're called to obey, all the promises we're to proclaim, all the doctrines we're to believe, all of that stems from this one teaching, which is what? The gospel. The apostles' teaching is the gospel. Okay? Now, you're thinking, well, what does believing in the gospel, you know, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sin and me having eternal life if I believe that and have forgiveness of sin, how does that prevent me from becoming a narcissist? Well, again, the Apostle Paul is helpful. Listen to what he says this time in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, we read, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is Paul describing here? You know what he's describing? He's describing the mindset Jesus had when he went to the cross. What was Jesus' mindset when he went to the cross to die as our substitute Savior? He had the mindset of what? A slave, a servant a steward, okay? When he went to the cross, he didn't think of himself as superior to everyone. He saw himself as inferior to everyone. He was a slave. He didn't consider equality with God something to be proclaimed, right? Here's what's so crazy. Jesus is God, right? He is superior, right? He is the only person in the universe who can accurately say, what's mine is mine, and guess what? What yours is mine too, right? You know the narcissist says that? The opposite of a steward says that? You know, what's, what's mine is mine, what's yours is mine if I can have it. Jesus is the only one who can literally say and be so true and not be arrogant about it, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine too. It's more mine than it is yours, right? Your money is mine, your time is mine, your wife, your husband is mine, your children are mine, your church is mine, your family is mine, your life is mine more than it will ever be yours. That's who Jesus is. He could legitimately say that and not be in any way arrogant in any way or a narcissist. That's who Jesus is. And yet that is not what he did when he came to save us. 
You know what Jesus did when he came to save us? When he became a human being, suffered and humiliated and died on the cross so that we could be saved from our sins? You know what he said to us? What's mine is yours if you need it. That's what Jesus did. That's what his actions tell us. Here's the question. What does Jesus have that he gave to us that we, they, that we desperately need? What did Jesus have that was his, that was mine, that he gave to us that we really needed? He gave us God, right? He gave us his father. Through death on the cross, and if we have faith in what his death on the cross produced for us, his father becomes our father, right? He becomes our Abba Father. He gave us God. And here's the thing. If you have God through Jesus, through faith in Christ, you have the one thing that can bring all of those four experiences of belonging together. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. Let me go back to that Yankees illustration. I know that ridiculous illustration. You being a Yankees fan, right? Let's say, you know, after the game is over, the Yankees won, right? And this stranger who you gave a bear hug to is like, hey, man, let's have a beer and let's celebrate the Yankees. Like, yeah, let's do it. And over the beer, are you going to start, or if you're under 21, you're Coca-Cola, right? Over your beverage, whatever it is, are you going to start divulging your deepest, darkest secrets at that moment? No, it's totally inappropriate. You don't know this guy. Well, I thought you felt connected to them when you experienced Well, that's different. Yeah, that's different. Well, conversely, let's say you go to a counselor and you confess your deepest, darkest things and you, conf- and you feel so connected to them and then you ask your counselor, hey, you want to go see a Yankees game with me? And she might go, I'm a Mets fan. <laughs> I'm going to go to the, but I thought we felt connected. Well, that's different. You see, you can experience all these relational experiences that make you feel connected outside of the church in non-Christian settings. But you're going to experience them so disjointedly, you're not going to experience them collectively together except in the church. Because God is the only one who can bring all of these experiences of belonging together. Because you experience God in those ways, right? Think of it. Who is God? God is the transcendent one, right? He is the literal transcendent one. So when you're in God's presence, what do you feel? Oh, wonder that's why we sing praises because that's his that's the way he is he it causes us to be in awe of him right so that when you're with other christians who are in awe of him all of a sudden you have this awe thing in common that's making you feel connected to each other right but god is not only the transcendent one you know who else he is he is the providing one he's the one who provides for all of our needs even our greatest need which is salvation which means when you're around other Christians who experience this same God as provider, now you have something in common with them, right? God is not only that, however, he's also what? He's the committed one. He's the one who's committed to our growth and our sanctification. Isn't that what Paul says? That he who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus? To where every time you sin, he forgives. Every time you sin, he forgives. He forgives. He forgives. And the more he forgives, the more you learn about your sins and your patterns to where you grow out of your sins, to where you mature, he's committed to you, to sanctification. And then finally, God is the listening one. To where you can confess your deepest and darkest, most disgusting sins to him. And you know he's not going to turn away because Jesus Christ made sure that God will always listen. No matter how depraved and disgusting your confession, your secrets are. Isn't that interesting? God 
is experienced in all these ways of belonging. A transcendent way, providing way of salvation, in the context of meeting a need, in the context of sharing vulnerabilities. God is able to bring what is usually segregated from each other collectively so that the belonging that you feel in each of these four categories are multiplied and magnified in the church that will never be duplicated outside of the church. That's why if you can really have a sense of belonging in the church, it does not compare to any marriage, any family, any friendship, any experience in a concert, any experience of transcendence, because in the church you have God bringing full belonging in every possible category together in Jesus Christ. That's what he is saying. And here's the question. What happens when you experience this and when a church collectively experiences this sense of belonging? It says it right there in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. In other words, the church grows. The church grows. And as the church grows, you know what that means? There are more people in the world who are not narcissistic, but instead they're stewards. And the more there are stewards in the world, in other words, there are more people who are like Jesus in the world, the better off the world will be. You see? Are you guys getting this? Are you guys understanding why it's in Jesus Christ that you can have a sense of belonging that you will never have anyone else? I get so fed up when I meet Christians who say, you know, Pastor John, I feel more closer to my non-Christian you know, buddies that I meet at the bar than I do at the church. Shame on you for saying that. Because you are essentially desecrating what God has done and what God can only do amongst community that you have not tapped into. And you have the audacity to say that you have more sense of belonging with people who don't share Christ. You have no idea what you're talking about. Here's the question. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Do you understand what it really means to belong? At this time, I'd like to invite you to spend some time reflecting on what I said in today's message. And, you know, to help facilitate that, I'd like to invite you just to close your eyes and just kind of get yourself in a prayerful mindset so that you can ask the Spirit to really hone in on where you need to apply this message today. And I really want to just begin by asking you this one simple question. And that question is this. Have you struggled to get a sense of belonging here at NCF? Again, have you struggled to get a sense of belonging here at NCF, especially if you've been here for a long time, okay? I'm sure you have, and I'm sure that the most common response to your struggle is, it's NCF's fault. It's Pastor John's fault. It's Pastor James' fault. It's, it's the leader's fault. It's the church's fault. The church is not welcoming enough. The church is cold. The church is the one that is the issue. I don't deny it. I'm sure we're not welcoming enough. I'm sure at times we're cold. I'm sure I've made mistakes. But could it be that there is another factor and perhaps a bigger factor as to why you don't feel like you belong? Could it be that the reason why you don't have a sense of belonging here is that you have not committed to the routine of God's family? And could it be that the reason why you are neglecting these routines is because you're not seeing yourself as a steward but instead you're seeing yourself as the opposite of a steward. The question is, have you let Jesus Christ 
change how you view yourself so that instead of thinking that you're more than you are, you can see for yourself who you are in Jesus, a beloved of God, a steward, thereby providing the pathway for you and incentivizing you to participate in the routines of God's family that would sensitize you and enable you to feel what you are already together. I invite you now to go to him in prayer as a response. Let's pray together.